0: Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the podcast, talking about The Overture Overture of Hail and Farewell. We finished it, and uh, the prompt that came to my mind was, uh, he has gone to a heck of a lot of effort to write this book from the right place, and I hope it's worth it. So, unless I got this wrong, The Overture was like the story of him setting himself up, positioning himself... Um, Like, mentally and literally. um, To be in the right place to write this book. Uh, So... um, It was was a heck of a long intro, just to do that. But I'm not judging the book by its introduction or its overture. Um, I, I enjoyed... You know, part two, the second half of this over till more than the first half. But still, it was a bit dry. Swim says the mum fishy. Has this to say. Just listened to your podcast. I want to encourage you to finish out this last bit. Some for selfish reasons, maybe mostly. But some because I am old enough to be your mother. I think most everyone knows I'm in my 60s. 63 to be exact. Uh, The selfish part, the Hemingway list has been a part of my morning routine for the last four four years and I will miss it when we finish that's, I mean, so far this is one of the nicest messages you're, you know I don't know uh, it's just very sweet to, of you to say these things I, I just, thank you um, and I, I just, I love the idea that I've been part of people's daily routines because I have had podcasts part of routines for me um for years, and and I know exactly that feeling of, uh, I don't know, it's like, it's a, it's a, it it builds itself into the routine and you almost can't separate them back out. And to think that I could be anything close to that for someone is brilliant. I love that. Um, I want to say for these last few weeks, before we all say goodbye, there is a very cheesy poem that ends with the lines, and you learn and you learn with every goodbye you learn." Well, that's very sweet. Um what would I say to that? I mean I I, I mean, at this point Swim have been hanging out together on a daily basis for four years. I consider us to be friends beyond the podcast, so you know, I don't want to be saying goodbye to you either. And um, you know, we're socially media connected. You can uh You you can hit me up on Instagram, you know, whatever it is. And on a creative side, I suppose, like I'm I'm thinking, 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 what do I do after this podcast? Because at at the moment, I've got a daily routine, which has been going for five years for me. And before that, you know, I've always been a creative person, doing YouTube, doing writing, writing music, uh, And putting myself out there like I enjoy doing this kind of thing where I'm, you know, hosting something, I suppose, is something I love to do. So I will do something next. Um, It probably won't be daily, granted. Uh, But something. I'm not sure what it'll be yet, but we'll figure that out. The mother part. I think when you're older, you would regret that you didn't complete this task you set for yourself. I know how freaking busy you are. By the time I was your age, I had three young children and a full-time career, which I loved and didn't give up. I was tired a lot, but it was worth it. Well, thanks for saying that as well. Yeah, I mean, I am very tired and the career is very busy at the moment. Um, You know, it's full-time, but also I started it, the particular, the place I am now at the moment, in particular, I started there nearly six months ago and they've put me on a six-month probation. And so I've literally got like less than two weeks left of this probation. And then I find out really if I have a permanent job or not. And I'm pretty sure I do. But I'm very kind of stressy at the moment because like, yeah, I don't know, that hangs on you. Like, maybe, maybe I won't have a job. Maybe they don't want me. We've got to be prepared for that. Anyway, why am I talking about that? Yeah. Anyway, I'm busy. Kids, jobs, stuff like that. Uh, You started this particular journey not knowing that you would end up with a newborn son and a demanding job. I mean, I wasn't even with my current partner when I started this. It was five years ago. Crazy. Now we've got a kid together. (laughs) There will be many more surprises, by the way. My advice, power through the next few weeks and then move on to the next phase of your life, which will be sad that I won't know about. Hey, well, you might know about. I'm sure you will. We'll stay in touch. You have my word. Um, You know, unless after four years you would like to be free of me. (laughs) You wouldn't be the first. Um, It's funny, though, about the kid, like a newborn. And I I don't know. A lot's changed, eh? When Toby was born, um, I'd been with Kylie at that point for, you know, three years. Um, and you know, we're in our late thirties, so three years is a long time in late thirties. Like that's a long enough for you to know, yeah, okay, we're doing this properly you know, when you're young, everything's so volatile, you don't know what you want, all the rest, but now we're settled and you know, so three years, well, and truly enough time to know where we are with each other. And, um, I said to Kylie, <laughs> cause we met on Tinder of all places. Which, is, you know, a lot of modern love stories start that way. I said to her, when we were, got our little baby home, sitting on the couch with him, I went, this is a long Tinder date. And she found that very funny. Um, anyway, <clears throat> TechRific says, I want to savor these last few weeks before we all say goodbye. Uh, maybe each Hemingway lister can choose a book and carry on going forward there's plenty of free audio platforms out there that would make it viable for each of us to select a book we really love and read it and introduce and discuss it with each other well yeah for sure Um, absolutely I mean the platforms here we've got the the um, the the subreddit and it's easy to host an audio file somewhere yeah for sure So, that's a cool idea. And in terms of my, you know, I've got a podcast now with, um, like, sometimes I look at the stats and it blows my mind a little bit. Um, I don't even know how to see it now that I'm saying this profile. Profile. Yeah. I've got 4,000 followers on my podcast. Isn't that amazing? 4,000 people subscribe to my podcast. And hey, look, I don't get 4,000 listens per day, but I do get a a couple hundred listens most days, which is pretty good. Um, And then it just seems like I'm not just going to, like, like at the end of the Hemingway list, at, at the end of this book, do I just leave that podcast? Just stop using that account? Or what do I do with it? Do I merge it into my next podcast and just continue on from there? I don't don't know. Um, I think I want to do some kind of a... Something going forward. There's more and more books coming into the public domain, and there's a lot of really good books in the public domain. Like um, The Great Gatsby now is in the public domain. And I don't know if I want to do a, a Hemingway List daily reading style reading, but I kind of just want to read it as an audio book, you know, just sit there and read it and just do it like, do my best job at actually really trying to make it a good audio book. Um, and yeah, maybe I would just put that up there or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, Techrific, great idea. Okay. So, Memoir, it seems to me, says Tech, is a tricky genre to navigate. Usually we read memoirs that have triggered some interest in the subject, namely the person and his time and work. I hadn't heard of George Moore before this, and the politics of the time were pretty much covered in Dubliners already, but the promise of a literary memoir that contains a point of view of literature, art, culture and politics is kind of exciting, maybe. Maybe I'm alone in having this feeling. It remains to be seen if I'll really get into this book so far, I'm neutral, but interested. I had a hard time reading this on Gutenberg. It's not formatted well, so I bought a copy for my iPad, and I must say the experience is much, much better. I got his complete works for 3 bucks US, and it was worth it uh, for a better reading experience. Usually I'd like to read physical book, I'm old school, but this will do since I can annotate and look up words on the iPad. Swim says I bought the complete works for three bucks as well. For anyone who's interested, I got it from Google play books. It's the Delphi classics, complete work. Um, so I think the thing with this particular book is it's in still copyrighted certain editions in certain countries. So we're in a little gray area here. Like, I don't know if like I can publish this. I can publish this because it's published on the, on the internet but um you know it's kind of like in some countries you might be breaking copyright law by reading it <laughs> if that makes sense um or something like that i don't i don't really get it but it's a gray area um but you know what i'm going to do over the next few days when i get a chance i'm going to buy an a, a, a an ebook version of it uh and th- have a look and suss out if it's worth Doing the swap over. Um, And maybe, yeah, maybe we switch over to that. But for now, I'm going to jump back over to Gutenberg. Head on down to chapter one. Now, chapter one goes for about um, four decades, I think, roughly. It's freaking long. Um, So I'm not going to read the whole chapter. And I'm not even going to read half of the chapter. um, Because I'm just not. (laughs) I think this whole copy pasting into the daily reading is good for me because I want to get this book done pretty quickly. And so some days I'm just going to read a huge chunk as much as I can, you know, but other days, um, I'm going to want to try to get the the reading over fairly quickly. And today's one of those, um, Probably help if I didn't babble on and on for like a full 10, 15 minutes before I actually started, but I was feeling a bit chatty today, so apologies for that. All right, chapter one goes like this. One of Ireland's many tricks is to fade away to a little speck down on the horizon of our lives and then to return suddenly in a tremendous bulk, frightening us. My words were, in another 10 years it will be time enough to think of Ireland again, but Ireland... Rarely stays away so long. As well as I can reckon, it was about five years after my meditation in the temple that W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet, came to see me in my flat in Victoria Street, followed by Edward. My surprise was great at seeing them arrive together. Not knowing, they even knew each other, and while staring at them I remembered they had met in my rooms in King's, wa- uh, King's Bench Walk. But how often had Edward met my friends and liked them in a way yet not enough to compel him to hook himself on to them by a letter or a visit? He is one of those self-sufficient men who drift easily into the solitude of a pipe or a book. He yet he is cheerful, talkative, and forthcoming when one goes to see him. Our fellowship began in boyhood, and there is affection on his side as well as mine. I'm sure of that, all the same, he has contributed few visits to the maintenance of our friendship. It is I that go to him, and it was this knowledge of the indolence of his character that caused me to wonder at seeing him arrive with yeats. Perhaps seeing them together stirred some fugitive jealousy in me, which passed away when the servant brought in the lamp, for with the light behind them my visitors appeared a twain as fantastic as anything ever seen in Japanese prints. Edward, great in girth as an owl, he is nearly as necklace, blinking behind his glasses and Yeats, lank as a rook, a dream in black silhouette on the flowered wallpaper. But rooks and owls do not roost together, nor have they a habit or an instinct in common, a mere doorstep casualty. I said, and began to prepare a conversation suitable to both, which was, however, checked by the fateful appearance they presented, sitting side by side, anxious to speak yet again. Excuse me. Anxious to speak, yet afraid. They had clearly come to me on some great business, but about what? About what? I waited for the servant to leave the room, and as soon as the door was closed, they broke forth, telling together that they had decided to found a literary theatre in Dublin, so I sat like one confounded, saying to myself, of course they know nothing of independent theatres, and in view of my own difficulties in gathering sufficient audience for two or three performances, pity began to stir in me for their forlorn project. A forlorn thing it was, surely, to bring literary players to Dublin, Dublin of all cities in the world, It is Yeats, I said, who has persuaded dear Edward, and looking from one to the other, I thought how the cunning rook had enticed the profound owl from his belfry, an owl that has stayed out too late and is nervous, lest he should not be able to find his way back, perplexed too by other considerations, lest the dean and chapter, having heard of the strange company he is keeping, may have, during his absence, bricked up the entrance to his roost." As I was thinking these things, Yeats tilted his chair in such dangerous fashion that I had to ask him to desist, and I was sorry to have to do that. So much like a rook did he seem when the chair was on its hind legs, but if ever there was a moment of seriousness, this was one, so I treated them to a full account of the independent theatre, begging them not to waste their plays upon Dublin. I would give... it would give me no pleasure whatever, to produce my plays in London, Edward said. I have done with London. Martin would prefer the applause of our own people, murmured Yeats, and he began to speak of the by-streets and the lanes and the alleys and how one feels at home when one is among one's own people. Ninety-nine is the beginning of the Celtic Renaissance, said Edward. I'm glad to hear it, I answered. The Celt was once a renaissance, and badly, he has been going down in the world for the last two thousand years. We're thinking, said Yeats, of putting a dialogue in Irish before our play. usheen and Patrick, Irish spoken on the stage in Dublin. You are not interrupting me. Edward began to blurt out that a change had come, that Dublin was no longer a city of barristers, judges and officials pursuing a round of mean interests and trivial amusements, but the capital of the Celtic Renaissance. With all the arts for crown, a new Florence, I said, looking at Edward incredulously, scornfully, perhaps, for to give a literary theatre to Dublin seemed to me like giving a mule a holiday, and when he pressed me to say if I were with them, I answered with reluctance that I was not. Whereupon, and without further entreaty, the twain took up their hats and staves, and they were by the door before I could beg them not to march away like that. But to give me time to digest what they had been saying to me, and for a moment I walked to and forth, troubled by the temptation, for I am naturally propense to thrust my finger into every literary pie-dish, something was going on in Ireland for sure, and remembering the literary tone that had crept into a certain Dublin newspaper, somebody sent me the Express on Saturdays, I said, I'm with you, but only platonically. You must promise not to ask me to rehearse your plays. I spoke again about the independent theatre and of the misery I had escaped from when I cut the painter. But you'll come to Ireland to see our plays, said Edward. Come to Ireland. And I looked at Edward suspiciously. A still more suspicious glance fell upon Yeats. Come to Ireland. Ireland and I have ever been strangers, without an idea in common. It never does an Irishman any good to return to Ireland, and we know it. One of the oldest of our stories, Yeats began, whenever he spoke these words, a thrill came over me. I knew they would lead me through accounts of strange rites and prophecies, and at that time I believed that Yeats, by some power of divination or of ancestral memory, understood the hidden meaning of the legends, and whenever he began to tell them, I became impatient of of interruption. But it was now myself that interrupted, for however great the legend he was about to tell, and however subtle his interpretation, it would be impossible for me to give him my attention until I had been told how he had met Edward, and all the circumstances of the meeting, and how they had arrived at an arrangement to found an Irish literary theatre. The story was disappointingly short and simple. When Yeats had said that he had spent the summer at Cool with Lady Gregory, I saw it all. Cool is but three miles from Tillyrah. Edward is often at Cool, Lady Gregory and Yeats are often at Tillyrah. Yeats and Edward had written plays, the drama brings strange fowls to the roost. So an owl and a rook have agreed to build in Dublin. A strange nest indeed they will put together, one bringing sticks and the other. With what materials does the owl build? My thoughts hurried on, impatient to speculate on what would happen when the shells began to chip. Would the young owls cast out the young rooks, or would the young rooks cast out the young owls, and what view would the beholders take of this wondrous hatching, and what view would the church? So it was in Galway the nest was builded, and Lady Gregory elected to the secretaryship, I said— The introduction of Lady Gregory's name gave me pause, and you have come over to find actors and rehearse your plays. Wonderful, Edward, wonderful. I admire you both and am with you, but on my conditions, you will remember them. And now, tell me, do you think you'll find an audience in Dublin capable of appreciating the heather field? Ideas are only appreciated in Ireland, Edward answered somewhat defiantly. I begged them to stay for dinner, for I wanted to hear about Ireland, but they went away. Speaking of an appointment with Miss Vernon, that name, or some other name, a lady who was helping them to collect a cast. As soon as they had news, they could come to me again, on this and on this I returned. What? As soon as they had news, they could come to me again, and on this I returned to my room, deliciously excited, thrilling all over at the thought of an Irish literary theatre, and my own participation in the Celtic Renaissance brought about by Yeats. So, the drama, I muttered, was not dead but sleeping, and while the hour before Yeats was going by, I recalled an evening I had spent about two years ago in the Avenue Theatre, and it amused me to remember the amazement with which I watched Yeats marching round the dress circle. After the performance of his little one-act play, The land of heart's desire. The land of heart's desire. His play neither pleased nor displeased. It struck me as an inoffensive trifle, but himself had provoked a violent antipathy as he strode to and forth at the back of the dress circle, a long black cloak drooping from his shoulders, a soft black sombrero on his head, a voluminous black silk tie flowing from his collar. Loose black trousers dragging untidily over his long heavy feet, a man of such excessive appearance that I could not do otherwise, could I, than to mistake him for an Irish parody of the poetry that I had seen all my life strutting its rhythmic way in alleys of the Luxembourg gardens, preening its rhymes by the fountain's excessive in habit and gait. As far back as the days when I was a Frenchman, I had begun to notice that whosoever adorns himself will soon begin to adorn his verses, so robbing them that of that intimate sense of life which we admire in Verlaine. His verses proclaim him to have been a man of most modest appearance. Never did Hugo or Banville affect any eccentricity of dress, and there are others, but let us be content with the theory and refrain from collecting facts to support it for in doing so we shall come upon exceptions, and these will have to be explained away. Suffice it to say, therefore, that Yeats' appearance at the Avenue Theatre confirmed me in the belief that his art could not be anything more than a pretty externality if it were as much, and I declined to allow Nettleship to introduce me to him. No, my good friend, I don't want to know him. He wouldn't interest me, not any more than the Book of Kells, not so much. Cowles has, at all events, the merit of being archaic. Whereas, no, no, to speak to him would make me leave. Eve? Heave. If I may quote a girl whom I heard speaking in the street yesterday. It was mon- months after, when I had forgotten all about Yeats, that my fingers distractedly picked up a small volume of verse out of the litter in Ship's room. Yeats. And after turning over a few pages, I called to Nettleship, who, taking advantage of my liking for the verses, begged again that he might be allowed to arrange a meeting, and seduced by the strain of genuine music that seemed to whisper through the volume I consented. The Cheshire cheese was chosen as a tryst, and we started for that tavern one summer afternoon, talking of poetry and painting by turns, stopping at the corner of the street to finish an argument or an anecdote, Oxford Street was all aglow in the sunset and Nettleship told, as we edged our way through the crowds, how Yeats's great poem was woven out of the legends of the Fianna, and stopped to recite verses from it so often that we arrived at the Cheshire Cheese, we found the poet sitting in the front of a large steak, eating abstractedly. I thought, as if he did not know what he was eating, hearing, if he had heard at all with only half an ear, the remonstrance that Nettleship addressed to him for having failed to choose Friday to dine at the Cheshire Cheese, it being the day when steak and kidney pudding was on at the tavern. He moved up the bench to make room for me as for a stranger. Somebody overheard the unkind things I said at the Avenue Theatre and repeated them to him. I said to myself, however this may be, we shall have to get through the dinner as best we can. Nettleship informed me that Yeats was writing a work on Blake and the moment Blake's name was mentioned Yeats seemed altogether to forget the food before him and very soon we were deep in discussion regarding the Book of Thel, which Nettleship said was Blake's most effectual essay in meter. The designs that accompanied Blake's texts were known to me and when the waiter brought us our steaks, Blake was lost sight of in the interest of the food And in our interest in Yeats's interpretation of Blake's teaching, but as the dinner, scrolling, at the Cheshire Cheese was given so that I should make Yeats's acquaintance, Nettleship withdrew from the conversation, leaving me to continue it, expecting no doubt that the combat of our wits would provide him with an entertaining as exciting as of the cock-fights which used to take place a century ago in the adjoining yard so there was no choice for me but to engage in disputation or to sulk and the reader will agree that i did well to choose the former of course though the ground was all to my disadvantage my knowledge of blake being by accidental there was however no dread of combat in me my adversary Not inspiring the belief that he would prove a stout one, and feeling sure that without difficulty I could lay him dead before Nettleship, I rushed at him, all my feathers erect, Yeats parried a blow on which I counted, and he did this so quickly, and with so much ease that he threw me at once, a dialection, I muttered, of the very first rank, one of the different kind from any I have met before, and a little later I began to notice that Yeats was sparring beautifully, avoiding my rushes with great ease, avoiding playing to tire me with the intention of killing me presently with a single spur stroke. In the bout that ensued, I was nearly worsted, but at the last an answer shot into my mind, Yeats would have discovered its weakness in a moment, and I might have fared ill, so it was a relief to me to notice that he seemed willing to drop our argument about Blake and to talk about something else. He was willing to do this perhaps because he did not care to humiliate me, or it may have been that he wearied of talking about a literature to one who was imperfectly acquainted with it, or it may have been that I made a better show in argument than I thought. We might indulge in endless conjectures, and the simplest course will be to assume that the word dramatic led the conversation away from Blake. In Blake there is a great deal of drama, but in Yeats, as far as I knew his poetry, there was none, and his little play, The Land of Heart's Desire, did not convince me that there ever would be any. But Yeats's ideas about Yeats were different from mine. About this time he was thinking of himself as a dramatist and was anxious for me to tell him what his chances were of obtaining a hearing for a literary play in London. The Land of Hearts Desires was not the only play he had written, there was another, a four-act play in verse, which my politeness said would give me much pleasure to read. I had met with many beautiful verses in the little volume picked up in Nettleship's rooms, Yeats bowed his acknowledgment of my compliments, and a smile of faint gratification that trickled down his shaven lips seemed a little too dignified. Nor did I fail to notice that he refrained from any mention of my own writings, and wondering how Issa Waters would strike him. I continued the conversation, finding him at every turn, a more enjoying fellow than any I had met for a long time. Very soon, however, it transpired that he was allowing me to talk of the subjects that interested me. Without relinquishing for a moment his attention of returning to the subject that interested him, which was to discover what his chances were of getting a verse play produced in London— Two of the three time, two or three times, I ignored his attempts to change the conversation, but at last yielded to his quiet persistency and treated him to an account of the independent theatre and its first performance organised by me. And warming to my subject, I told him of the play that I had agreed to write, if M. Mister G. R. Sims would give a hundred pounds for a stall from which he might watch the performance. The stipulated price brought the desired perplexity into Yeats's face and it was amusing to add to his astonishment with and I got the £100. As he was obviously waiting to hear the story of the £100 stall, I told him that Sims was a popular dramatist to whom a reporter had gone with a view to gathering his opinions regarding independent drama and that in the course of Sims's remarks about Ibsen, Allusion had been made to the ideas expressed by me regarding literature and drama and as if to give point to this belief in the limitations of dramatic art, he had said that he would give £100 if Mr George Moore would write an unconventional play for the independent theatre. The reporter came to me with his newspaper and after reading his interview with Mr Sims, he asked me for my answer to Mr Sims's challenge. I am afraid Mr Sims is spoofing you. In the 90s, the word spoofing replaced the old word humbug, and of late years, it seems to be heard less frequency, but as it evokes a time gone by, I may be excused for reviving it here. If you write a play, the reporter answered, Mr. Sims will not refuse to give the £100. But he asks for an unconventional play, and who is to decide what is conventional? I notice, I said, picking up the paper, that he says the scenes which stirred the audience in Hedda Gabler are precisely those that are to be found in every melodrama. Mr. Sims has succeeded in spoofing you, but he will not get me to write a play for him to repudiate as conventional. No, no. I can hear him saying, the play is as conventional as the last one I wrote for the Adelphi. I'll not pay for that. But if Mr. Sims wishes to help the independent drama, let him withdraw the word conventional or let him admit that he has been humbugging. The reporter left me and the next week's issue of the paper announced that Mr. Sims had withdrawn the objectionable word and that I had laid aside my novel and was writing the play. So did I recount the literary history of the strike at Arlingford to Yeats, who waited, expecting that I would give him some account of the performance of the play. But remembering him as he had appeared when on exhibition at the Avenue Theatre, it seemed to me that the moment had come for me to develop my asceticism, and that an author should never show himself in a theatre while his own play was being performed. Yeats was of the opinion that it was only by watching the effect of the play upon the public that an author could learn his trade. He consented, however, that, and very graciously, to read a strike for at Arlington, Arlingford, if I would send it to him, and went away, leaving me under the impression that he looked upon himself as a considerable author, and that to meet me at dinner at the Cheshire Cheese was a condescension on his part. He had somehow managed to dissipate, and at the same time to revive my first opinion of him, but I am quick to overlook faults in whoever amuses and interests me, and this young man interested me more than ever, more than Edward and Simmons, my boon companions at that time. He was an instinctive mummer, a real dancing dog, and the dog on his hind legs is after all humanity. We are all on our hind legs striving to astonish somebody, and that is why I honour respectably if there were nobody to shock, our trade would come to an end. And for this reason I am secretly in favour of all the cardinal virtues, but this young man was advertising himself by his apparel, as the Irish middle classes do when they come to London bent on literature, They come in knee breeches and Jaeger, in velvet jackets, and this one was clothed like a Bible reader and chanted like one in his talk. All the same, I could see that among much Irish humbug there was in him. A genuine love of his art, and he was more intelligent than his verses, had led me to expect. All this I admitted to Nettleship as we walked up Fleet Street together. It even seemed difficult to deny to Nettleship when he bade me goodbye its Charing cross that I should like to see the young man again, and all the way back to the temple I asked myself if I should redeem my promise and send him the strike at Arlingford. And I might have sent it if I had happened to find a copy in my bookcase, but I never keep copies of my own books. The trouble of writing to my publisher of the play was a serious one. The postman would bring it in a brown paper parcel which I should have to open in order to write Yeats's name on the flyer leaf. I should have to tie the parcel up again, redirect it and carry it to the post, and all this trouble for the sake of an opinion which would not be the slightest use to me when I had gotten it. It was enough to know that there was such a play on my publisher's shelves. And that a dramatic writer had paid a hundred pounds to see it. Why I turn into the Vale of Yarrow, I muttered, and rising from my table, I went to the window to watch the pigeons that were coming up down from the roofs to gobble the corn a cabman was scattering before them. All right, pausing there. We're only maybe not even halfway through, but I'm going to stop there. Very excellent. Thanks for listening. See ya tomorrow.